This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan, public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, New Orleans criminal and municipal court judges continued to issue failure to appear warrants despite the increased health risks in area jails and amidst confusion about whether or not court was even open, according to a watchdog group. After a long process to select new names for NOLA public school buildings named in honor of slave owners or Confederate sympathizers, the Orleans Parish School Board released a list of new names for 24 buildings this week. And the City of New Orleans announced they will reopen the application process for the city's emergency rental assistance program after closing it just two weeks ago. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. On the podcast this week, criminal justice reporter Nick Crestel. Hey, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. Education reporter Marta Jusen. Hello, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Morning, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hey, Charles. Morning. Michael, the city announced this week they're reopening their rental assistance program after announcing just two weeks ago that they were suspending it. Tell us the background of this program. Yeah, so, so this is a, a, a program that uses federal funds that have come through um, coronavirus relief efforts at the federal level. So basically the program is for people struggling with rent and who have um, you know debt on, on their rent, rent payments. To qualify for aid, you need to be a household with an income at 60% of the area median, median income, um, which is about $42,000 um, for a family of four. Um, and you have needed to, to experience some reduction in income due to the coronavirus pandemic. And then third, you need to be at risk of, of experiencing some sort of housing instability or homelessness. So basically the, the way that the, the program works is that you apply. If you are, um, if your application is approved, um, the program will pay all of the debt that you have on your rent plus one month moving forward as a kind of way to kind of get you stabilized. And then in most cases, there's an agreement that the landlord needs to sign saying that they won't evict the person for another six months after that. Um, So that's kind of the basics of the program. Okay, how was it funded? So yeah, so these are all federal funds. Um, There's kind of a few different ways that the money is coming in, but it's all federal dollars. So the city directly received $11.6 million in federal funds. Some of these funds were also given directly to the state. And so through the state, New Orleans also expects to get another $15.1 million. And then this, is, this one is still up in the air, but the city has applied for an additional $15.6 million in federal funds. So if that is approved, it would be a total of $42.5 million to fund this program. Okay. You said that they're waiting for the state funding to still come. Presumably that money has been sitting in the state coffers for a while. Why the delay in getting it? Do you know? Yeah, so so apparently, you know, when when the city and the state were first talking about this, the idea was that the state was just going to give lump sums to parishes. So, you know, a check for $15.1 million, more or less. Um, apparently, at some point, the state changed its mind and decided that instead, cities were going to have to send in individual applications that have been approved for reimbursement from the state. There was some debate over how the city should now handle this. It sounds like what the city's plan is, is that it's going to spend through those $11.6 million um, and start sending in reimbursements to the state. Oh, I I should mention that, that the process for being reimbursed has not been set up by the state yet. 
So oh. the city is not able to submit anything for reimbursement um, right now. Now, there, there was some debate over whether there should be some sort of revolving fund that the city has um, that makes $15 million available um, since they know that in, in, in all likelihood that money will be paid back. Um, it doesn't sound like that's the current plan. It sounds like they're planning on you know, spending up that $11.6 million um, and trying to get as much reimbursement for that. And then as those reimbursements come in, start sending that money back out again. But I do think that the city's hesitance to kind of go ahead and start set sending this money out. Um, I, I think there's that type of hesitance whenever you have like a federal reimbursement program. Yeah. Um, you just never know, you know, you, you think you're doing one thing right. You know, the guidelines for these federal programs are not always, you know, entirely clear. Um, and so people do their best at interpreting them. But, you know, as we know, there are situations where you don't get reimbursed when you think you're going to. And state might have some higher bar for this where they're going to have their own standards um, to right. as well. So, yeah, I, I think that's what, what makes the city a little bit nervous. I should also mention that because of that same that same nervousness about getting reimbursement, there are apparently some parishes in the state that are not planning on using their state portion of this emergency rental assistance. Um, and in that case, um, New Orleans would actually be in line uh, apparently the city is lobbying the state um, in that scenario to get, then give that money to New Orleans. So New Orleans would be in line for a little bit of extra money in that situation. Because they don't need it, presumably. Well, or they're not using it. Or they're just not using it, or they just are a smaller parish without that many resources, and they're nervous about you know spending $1.5 million and then having the federal government say, hey, you messed up this and you messed up that, and then they're on the hook for you know $150,000 or, or something like that. Okay. Um, and so the major complaint that, that I seem to be reading about, about the federal requirements here seems to be the, the overhead uh, provision. Is that right? So yeah, so, so there's a provision that says that um, cities can use um, up to 10% of these funds on administrative costs. And that's been cited by the city um, for why, and I'm sure we'll get into this, for why uh, the money is kind of taking a long time to get out there. Now, I mean, 10% to me sounds like a lot of money, especially, you know, what we're talking about $42.5 million, talking about $4.2, $4.3 million in administrative costs. Um, you know, so that's been cited as a reason why this isn't moving as fast. I, I'm personally a little bit skeptical that they've actually spent 10% of these money on administrative costs, at least on additional administrative costs to, to stand up this program alone. Right. Um, that was a complaint that was made by um, at a recent city council meeting. There were people that were, you know, advocating for changes in the program. And one of the things that was said over and over um, was that, you know, the, the public, or at least these people didn't believe that the city was spending that 10% on administration. I mean, it's a $40, $40 million total. They've only gotten 11.6 thus far, right? For sure, for sure. Yeah. Um, they haven't said they've, you know, gotten to their limit yet. I, I mean, again, I just don't know if that's actually, you know, if they're, they've spent all that money and, you know, they're really up against a wall on that. Um, what, what did they, what did they offer? What they think would be an appropriate overhead limit for this? Like, or do they think twenty percent would be good, or twenty five percent, or did no. they say? No, and, and, and that's kind of part of the reason why I'm skeptical. And there was never really a discussion of, hey, we hit our cap and, and, you know, now we can't hire more people. You know, the discussion was all about, you know, what I was listening to was not we need more money, but we probably need to outsource this now um, to some group that, you know, would take 5% of every uh, grant or something like that. But uh, 
No, they, they didn't give specifics on what they would want the, that requirement to be. It's complicated. There's got to be a lot of overlap, and you can imagine the accounting mess that this brings up for them to have to track that money and make sure that it's going specifically to this program only for the administrative yeah. overhead. But Absolutely. so how many applications have there been? So yeah, I, there have been 12,000 over 12,000 applications um, that, that were sent in. Um, a lot of those came in almost immediately after the program was open. So over 5,000 of those applications came in in the first like two weeks um of the program so um yeah there was a big rush um and it reached over twelve thousand applications before they ended up closing the application process at the end of may okay and how many people got helped by the program so the program is still ongoing um it, it so far they've only spent um they've only awarded 6.2 million dollars in aid um and that's for 1,102 applications in total um, for the for an average assistance of $5,710 per applicant. So, you know, 6.2 million, that's a little above half of the money that the city actually has in hand. And again, you know, that, that doesn't take into account what the city could be doing to start getting that state allocation out now. So there were definitely complaints, you know, the, the, the program opened up in February, um, we're in June. And, you know, again, uh, uh, a little over half of the money that the city has in hand has gone out. Last year, we taught, you know, we the city put out for some lines of credit. I, I believe it was about $100 million or so. Is, is there any discussion of either using whatever of that money is left over to sort of front load the costs on this or to open a new line of credit for that? Yeah, so so I believe it was it ended up actually being fifty million dollars. I'm not sure if that line of credit is still open, but I, it, Councilwoman Kristen Palmer brought up that exact point that you know since the aid is needed right now, um, you know is the city at least attempting to try and locate some funds that they could start using for this? The administrator in charge of this program basically said she would look into it. It doesn't sound like something they're looking to do in the immediate term, but after the request from the city council, we'll see they might. But uh, that was definitely something the city council brought up. So what yeah. was the reason for suspending it? And, and so, when did they do that? So the, the idea of suspending it was that the 12,000 applications that have come in are far more than the city is going to be able to help. Um, you know, with the money that they have, even if that, you know, third tranche of money comes in and, and the city is able to realize that $42.5 million total, um, they say at most they'll be able to help around 6,000 of these applicants. So the idea was in closing it, um, um, you know, uh, basically was to stop giving people, you know, a false sense false of hope, hope when they were submitting these applications because it is um, mostly a first come first serve application. Um, every time you submit an application, you get a number and that number is, you know, where you are in line. Um, there are some exceptions. Um, you know, I think, you know, if, if there are people that are really on the verge of being evicted, really on the verge of, you know, facing homelessness, um, there are ways that you can skip lines in this program. Um, but for the most part, it's first come first serve. So, um, you know, as we wrote about, um, this week, you know, the, 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 after a lot of complaints where people were arguing that the city should open the application process back up, um, the city is now saying they will. However, again, it's, it's unclear whether if anyone who applies at this point will actually be, you know, in, in eligible for aid at this point. Well, yeah, but, but I mean, certainly from the first round of applicants, um, 
there are going to be there's going to be groups of people who are not technically eligible, and there there will probably be groups of people who may not need it as much as more recent applicants because you know some jobs have come back since they since they opened this application process. Right, and, and that was the argument. I, I think you know uh, Councilwoman Helena Moreno brought that same point up, especially around the point that you know someone might not be in the same dire need that they were in February. Um, however. As the program stands, it's almost entirely first come, first serve. So they don't, I don't think that there's currently a process in place to judge the, you know, um, urgency of an application and a request. So even if you did do that and there were more people that needed the aid more urgently that applied now, um, I don't think there's currently a process in place to do that. And my guess would be that if they tried, it would be it would take them even longer to get this money out. Right, sort of triaging the applicants would, would it seems to me, increase the administrative costs also. Yeah, and again, they are, again, for the most dire cases, you know, when, when evictions are going to court, um, you know, there is eviction moratorium, but evictions have gone on for, for, for some people um, for reasons other than un, uh, non-payment of rent. But, you know, it, Anyway, if people are immediately facing eviction, there are ways to cut the line. But in terms of, you know, how deep in debt are you? You know, do you have kids that you need to keep inside? I don't think that there, there's a way to prioritize. I was going to ask, what, what, what's the status of the eviction moratorium? And is, it, is that going on indefinitely or, or is it ending soon? I believe it's set to expire at the end of the month. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I, I, the, the moratorium is set to end at the end of the month. Um, I think, you know... The effect of the end of the moratorium will be interesting. I, I think that there are some housing advocates that say that evictions have more or less gone on unabated, um, regardless of the moratorium. You know, most evictions happen informally outside of court, and most people, you know, when their landlord says "get out" or "I'm putting your stuff on the street," um, maybe don't know or don't have the resources to get an attorney to challenge that immediately. It was also the moratorium didn't apply to things like. Um, lease violations. So if a, a landlord um, alleged that, you know, you were dealing drugs out of your apartment or you had um, damaged the property and you were continuing to damage the property, those evictions have still gone forward. The level of kind of the, the flood of evictions, you know, that, that we've been talking about, um, whether it is going to be a huge flood or whether that's just kind of happened um, already, you know, we'll have to see. Well, the other fact, the other factor is probably there are some um, administrative hoops you have to jump through to be to qualify for the current moratorium, right? Like you have to you have to submit an, uh, a document attesting to that you make less than $100,000 a year and you have applied for various federal and state relief programs and, and you know, have either exhausted that money or been denied. Right, that you're making your best efforts to find rental aid, and, and there are things that you have to sign that might make people nervous to, to get involved. Um, I'll or, say they, that, like, or that they might not even know that they have to sign. Exactly, mm. exactly, yeah. right. I mean, a lot of people show up to eviction court, if they show up at all, um, not really knowing how the proceedings work. A lot of the criticism of the emergency rental program is coming from the city's Spanish-speaking community and kind of talking about how much higher kind of these barriers get when you speak English proficiently. And I think the same thing would apply, you know, when it comes to any of these programs, any of these things that are hard to navigate, complicated to navigate, even for someone who's, you know, proficient in administrative tasks, you know, it gets even harder, you don't speak the language. To all these things, to all these, you know, rental programs and renter protections, there are hoops to jump through. Um, anytime the federal government is, is involved, it, it kind of goes that way. Okay, so what's happening next um, with funding? 
Um, so what happens next? Uh, I, I guess that the, the city will wait for the state to kind of open up this reimbursement process. Um, you know, again, they've already approved $6.2 million um, in applications. So they should be able to submit those for reimbursement, you know, immediately. And then, you know, once they get that money, that'll be recycled back into the fund. Um, and then, of course, we're also waiting on that, you know, to see if the, the federal government awards that $15.6 million um, additionally. But yeah, I mean, I think the big takeaway from both the city and uh, from uh, renters advocates um, is that there just is not going to be enough money um, to meet what is a very overwhelming need um, for rental assistance. Uh, that is the one thing that there is no kind of argument about, um, that there is a ton of need um, and, you know, what we have helps, but it won't be enough. How do people apply if they'd like to? So the, the application has been on um, the citiesready.nola.gov um, website. Um, that's how you've traditionally applied. There's also a paper application that you can download on the website. So yeah, they, they, they said that the city said they were going to reopen the application process. I'm just on the website right now and I'm, I'm clicking through kind of the online application. Um, I don't know for sure if that means it's open. You might get to the end here and submit it and it might say it's closed. but. Um, the form is there to fill out. Um, I haven't gotten official word from the city yet whether they have officially opened the applications yet again, um, but uh, they said it, it should happen, you know, in the next couple days. Okay, great. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are government and cultural economy reporter Michael Eisenstein, education reporter Marta Jusen, criminal justice reporter Nick Craster, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Madeline Arufo, and I'm a freelance reporter for The Lens. Our mission is to educate, engage, and empower readers with information and analysis necessary for them to advocate for a more transparent and just governance that is accountable to the public. That takes time and it takes resources. As a nonprofit, we count on donations to fund our work. Please consider helping us to do this important work by making a tax-deductible donation now at thelinsnola.org/donate. Thank you for your support. Okay, Marta, up next in schools, this week, NOLA Public Schools released new names for 24 of its school buildings. Remind us about this process. What up, what led up to this whole process happening in the first place? Yeah, so this whole thing kind of uh, kick-started just about a year ago uh, after George Floyd was murdered at the hands of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. You know, we really saw a wave throughout the nation of not only looking for police reforms, but people wanting to kind of, you know, get in touch and make sure we're uh, in touch with our past. And, you know, what what types of figures are we symbolizing in our communities? Um, who are we paying honor to? And is that appropriate based on what has happened in the past? And I, I think one place we saw that in the school system was uh, looking back at the names. Who have, have we in the South named our school buildings for and, and were they on the... Um, what some might say the right side of history is. So the Orleans Parish School Board um, updated their facility naming policy to say that you know they would not be naming buildings after slave owners or Confederate sympathizers, basically. Okay, what are some of those names? Uh, John McDonough's one. He actually uh, was uh, you know the, kind of a very important figure in the history of education here. He was a big th- philanthropist and left a lot of money to the schools, and you know there have been. 40 some odd buildings named after him. 
Um, but he was also a slave owner. So, you know, he, he's on the list and several campuses named after him are Bienville and Lafayette. And um, I think some that surprised people were maybe Ben Franklin, right? You know, right. Um, but there, there's a number of campuses named after people who fit those categories. At Lafayette and um, Ben Franklin in particular, I've seen some pushback on, um, you know, Ben Franklin was a slave owner early on in his life. He later became an early abolitionist. Um, and the same thing with uh, the Marquis de Lafayette. Did you see any pushback on those grounds that maybe they're not taking the full context into account for some of these people? Definitely saw the pushback for Franklin, uh, not as much for Lafayette, but um, I've seen that pushback in social media for Lafayette. What are some of the names that they're suggesting replace these old ones? Yeah, so Lafayette, actually they proposed uh, be renamed for uh, both civil rights leader and chef Leah Chase, um, hmm. which the Lafayette Academy school community was really excited about, but I think some other people were not so enthused because of that history that Charles was just talking about. A few of the McDonough buildings are going to be replaced. Uh, Their names, McDonough 15 in the French Quarter is going to be renamed for Homer Plessy. um, And that's the charter school that's there now. So that's, you know, kind of an easy fit. Audubon School, um, they're suggesting to rename for Dorothy Mae Taylor, who was a city councilwoman who led the charge on uh, desegregating Mardi Gras crews and ensuring that um, crews were integrated or allowing integration. Um, I believe that was in the early 90s. Mm. Um, And, you know, as a result of that, we saw some Mardi Gras crews decide not to march or seek city permits anymore. So that was a pretty big step in our carnival history. McDonough 42 is going to be renamed for Leah McKenna, who was a local educator, and we also saw a number of other local educators who um, will have buildings renamed after them, which I, I think is a very cool part of this. And again, I think there was some misunderstanding when this first began that some schools were saying, you know, how can you do this? This is our school. And the, the New Orleans Public School District had to say that this is only their buildings, not the program. Are there any programs that are, do you know, that are, are moving to change their names in keeping with I don't this? know of any programs yet doing that. Um, I, I know there's been push for Lusher to change their name uh, after Robert Mills Lusher, but there's been a strong pushback in that community to not rename it. However, there's also, you know, tons of students and supporters at Lusher who want to see a new name. So there's you know, kind of this internal strife within these school communities that that's going to play out at the charter school board level. Probably most people who listen to this podcast are familiar enough with the school system here, but just in case people, if people aren't, you know, in a traditional, so-called traditional school system where the, where the schools are directly run by a school board, the school building and the school are the same. In New Orleans, which is charter-based system, the school building is owned by the, by the district, uh, but it is occupied by a separate entity, which is the school itself, the operating board. And the operating board, regardless of what the building is named, is allowed to give itself its own name. The other thing was, correct me if I'm wrong, Marta, but some school programs sort of anticipated this and, and, and changed their names already. I'm thinking of something like 42 uh, Charter School, which was previously McDonough 42, right? Yeah, when Inspire NOLA took over it. Uh, that's cool. They, they said, we're not going to name it after this building. We're going to call it 42 Charter School. So yes. <laughs> so what happens now? These names are, are moving forward. What's the next step? Yep. The names are up for a final vote. Um, today's Thursday. So Thursday evening. And then we also had uh, the superintendent 
added six new schools that he wanted to consider for renaming, and those will be considered next month. So people have the opportunity to give public comment on those schools if they like for another month. Which ones are those? Bethune, Stuart Bradley, Lake Area, Village de l'Est, Arthur Ashe, and Martin Luther King Jr. And you can find a link to that on our website if you want to see what they're suggesting for the building names. And what's going on with COVID cases now with schools as uh, schools we, wi- we winding up? We didn't any new cases reported this week, but the district is still tracking active cases. Um, I think we got to take the new case thing with a grain of salt because we're in summer school. And so we don't you know, exactly know if that's a true measure of what's happening in the city, which is kind of, you know, the school district has been a weather vane of sorts over the last eight, 10 months. We did at a Tuesday um, committee meeting, district officials, you know, so much as admitted, like, we don't know if we're seeing, I don't want to go so far as to say accurate case data, but they, they very much were like, you know, we have fewer students in school. So, you know, we're going to see lower numbers and we don't know exactly what that means, but they did not report any new cases last week. Do we know, A, are they going to continue tracking through the summer school period? And, and B, are they going to continue tracking after summer school is largely over? Because, you know, traditionally, summer school will end. There will be a few weeks of, of little activity happening in schools. And then teachers start coming in for professional development almost immediately after that. They said they're going to continue using the tracker, but they did not give a specific timeline. So I, I imagine that's going to absolutely run through the end of summer school, but I'm not entirely sure what that's going to look like next year. Okay, great. Thanks, Marta. Thank you. Nick, in criminal justice, New Orleans criminal and municipal judges continued to issue failure to appear warrants during the pandemic, despite confusion on whether courts were in session and despite the health risks associated with having people congregate in buildings. What did Court Watch NOLA find in its report? And back up, I guess, and tell us who Court Watch NOLA is first. Yeah, Court, Court Watch NOLA is a, is a watchdog group that puts out a, a report about the court system in New Orleans every year. So they have people who, who go, who in normal times, would go into the courtrooms and observe um, as, you know, as the proceedings take place and, and collect data. And so every year they come out with a report at, that offers, you know, some some critiques and, and recommendations for how the court system can move more efficiently and do a better job of serving serving the citizens. The sort of recent iteration of Court Watch over the last few years, their their mission statement has really been around sort of making the court system work for the average person. They sort of see it as a system that serves the peop- the, the players in it, so attorneys and judges, and really oftentimes leaves out um, the people who it's actually supposed to serve, who, you know, the victims of crime, the defendants who, who deserve a fair, fair day in court. Anyway, so that Court Watch NOLA and, and kind of their their perspective, they put out the report on Monday. Um, and one of the things that they found was that, as you said, judges have continued to issue warrants for failure to appear. That's when for when people don't show up at their court dates, which, you know, would potentially lead to someone someone getting arrested um, and, and being booked into the jail if they, if they get picked up on one of these. Why was this notable? Well, it's, it's warrants have been an issue in um, New Orleans courts for a while. A, a report came out, um, I believe, last year that there were, um, you know, tens of thousands of outstanding warrants in municipal court, which is where uh, lower level, level matters, matters are handled. So 
these are you know outstanding warrants for things like what we think of as quality quality of life crimes often you know public drunkenness or uh, you know things like that and advocates really argued that these warrants were were a huge problem because people could get picked on up on them oftentimes they don't even know that you know had a warrant out and they could spend you know a, a few nights in jail and, and that can really disrupt you know your life and also can can lead to, to some cycles of debt and, and financial burden that and oftentimes these people are, are already struggling and, and in vulnerable positions. So, so warrants have been an issue. During COVID, it, it, they became a bigger issue because the jail was experiencing very high rates of, of COVID-19. And on top of that, people were often unsure of whether or not the court was open. Right. Um, this is, you know, this is the argument that that the court watch report is making, and and it's true that that uh, both criminal district court and municipal court closed in March for several months. Criminal district courts moved a lot of the proceedings online and were doing them via Zoom, but those that was only for certain defendants. Primarily at the beginning, it was only for defendants who were who were incarcerated. And then when they opened back up, they were doing some some uh, some hearings via Zoom, some in person. Uh, people needed to come in and get a new court date and the, the sheriff's office and the court kind of set up a, a tent outside where they could come and get a new new date. But I think the report mentions the court issued 15 orders between March and December regarding what defendants should do. Um, so there's these, these it's constantly shifting state of affairs over there. Um, and there were, there were weeks when, when, you know, throughout the pandemic where someone would test positive and the court would shut down for a week. So it was really, really hard for people to, to figure out whether or not the court was even open and whether or not they should come in. So the report argues that issuing a, uh, a warrant when someone doesn't show up in these circumstances wasn't a good idea. With the court opening and closing all the time, you know, people move, people's cell phone numbers change all the time. Did they did they have anything in place to make sure that they were actually getting summonses and notifications to the right place? You know, I think that was very unclear. The, I mean, the report notes, and, and Simone Levine is the, the executive director, she basically said that she had a really hard time getting any solid answers to those questions. Um, we do know that normally there is a, I don't know if I should say normally, but in, tw- in 2019, the city set up a text message notification system for people's court dates where they should have been receiving um, text messages, reminders of when, when their court date was, but that got shut down during the cyber attack and was down through kind of the, the main part of the pandemic. I think for criminal district court, they got it set back up again uh, in August. So the cyber attack was December of 2019, and I believe they got the got the text message notification set, uh, system set up in August of 2020. So kind of the, you know, the main chunk of the, the highest part of the pandemic was people were not receiving text message notifications. In municipal court, they still aren't receiving text message notifications. Uh, so, so to answer your question, Charles, I'm not sure what sort of systems were in place to notify people, but, it, but it's a real concern. Um, you know, the report points it out. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, as, as you suggested, that's going to be a concern even when things are normal and the court is operating at some, on normal hours. But it's especially a concern if, if, you know, the court shuts down for a month or two and, uh, you know, over the course of a month or two, somebody, you know, somebody could easily get a new cell phone. Somebody could easily move to a new, new address. So, you know, it uh, seems to be an especially, a, a particular concern under these circumstances, I would think.
And meanwhile, the, the city and the sheriff's office are trying to reduce the jail population because of COVID. So how do these two square? What did the judges say about their, their policy that goes in direct conflict with what the city and the sheriff's office are trying to do? Well, the judges at criminal district court did decline to comment. Um, and, you know, I will say, yeah, during, during, the, during the sort of height of the pandemic, there was a, a pretty universal understanding that some between the, sher- the sheriff's office and even the judges, I think, understood that there needed to be some sort of triage at the jail to reduce the population as much as possible. Um, so, so the sheriff's office could spread people out and to, to reduce the risk of, of COVID spread in the facility and to really only have the, the people who are, who are an immediate uh, public safety risk behind bars. I mean, this is what sort of advocates and the public defenders have been arguing should be the case all the time, um, of course. So these issuing these failure to appear warrants, you know, I think people would argue is that these, these people are out in society as it is, issuing a warrant only because they missed a court date and not because they've done some something to put someone else at risk or broken the law in some way, some some more significant way. One was was putting um, creating an unnecessary health risk. And yeah, I think I think definitely sort of went against the broader efforts to reduce the jail population. I will say, you know, the report the report notes that so there were three hundred attachments issued in municipal court despite the fact that municipal court actually, uh, the judges came together and issued a, an order saying that no one should be arrested for failure to appear. They went ahead and still issued these attachments that would have allowed someone to, to get arrested. And then criminal district court issued about 60 warrants. We don't, we can't see from this report what specifically all those things were for. The, the, the chief judge at municipal court suggested that these were maybe domestic violence cases. Um, you know, if they're being handled in, in municipal court, they would have been necessarily been misdemeanor domestic violence cases. So, so probably you know less serious than, than what you'd see at the felony level. But you know, it's it's hard to say exactly what the reasoning was behind all of these. Does it indicate in many cases whether the the DA's office or the assistant or, or assistant city attorneys in the case of municipal court were requesting the warrants be issued? It, it does not indicate, but I know from talking to public defenders, I think during the previous administration, there were times uh, during the previous district attorney's administration, there were times when, when the when prosecutors were asking for, for warrants to be issued for failure to appear. I, I talked to DA Williams about it a few months ago, not long after he, he took office, and he said that his prosecutors would not be doing that. Um, and, and based on my understanding, talking from public defenders, I think that seems to be the case, is that this is, has more more recently been a, a judge's decision, and it always is under judge's discretion whether or not to issue these warrants, even if a prosecutor asks, they don't have to. Okay. Is this including virtual and in-person appearances? That's a good question, and I can't speak on it, but it's, it's something I'm trying to figure out is whether or not they, there were uh, KPS warrants, be, uh, these, these bench warrants being issued when someone, can fail, when someone failed to appear for a, a Zoom meeting. I was going to ask if you, what if you aren't able to connect to the internet? Can you request an in-person meeting? Yeah, I believe now, and I think probably uh, beginning in June when the court opened up again, that that people were able to come in. 
um, that I think it, it, there was probably preference for for virtual meetings, but but yeah, if someone wasn't able to 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 get onto Zoom, then they were able to come in. I mean, it, it kind of brings up a, a question though, you know, resources in terms of not just internet connection, but you know, people have trouble getting to court. People have you know jobs. People right. have all these things to navigate, um, and you know. In some ways, maybe having having a virtual option lowers the bar for some people. For some, it, it makes it more difficult. But right. there there are all these considerations which which you know advocates bring up when when talking about why it's a problem that these warrants are being are being issued. Okay. Yeah, I mean, we were running a reduced bus schedule for that whole period of time. So right, and I mean, and people were people were scared to to leave their houses. Um, it was certainly to go be in a uh, building with other people. And the report notes that, that in municipal court, you know, they, they never went to virtual meetings and they opened back up in June for in-person, uh, which was at June was still really like one of the worst spikes in, in the pandemic. So you can understand why some people might not uh, have wanted to show up in a, at a crowded courthouse uh, at that time. Right. Okay. Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks for your work this week. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan, public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Nick Crestel, Marta Jusen, Michael Isaac Stein, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.